Do take a seat. Well, just consider for yourself, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? What are the things in your life which bring you deep joy and happiness for which you are thankful for God? What does it mean to be blessed? And perhaps a second question, what are the things of the world around us might consider blessings? It's maybe not a word used so much. Good fortune, good luck. Is that how it's used? Well, I wonder as you consider that, what came to mind for you? I wonder if for any of you, the things for which you consider it to be a blessing is an awareness of your own sin. Does that come to mind? An awareness of your moral failures, of your disobedience? Or perhaps more particularly, the knowledge of those sins forgiven, of guilt removed. This morning I want to have a look uh, not at the one John passage, although we'll refer to that and that will be helpful, uh, but I want to have a look at Psalm 32. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. It's on page 553. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, for the writer of this psalm, he's reflecting on the blessing of sins forgiven. Look how he begins. Verse 1. Blessed is the one, not who has a big house, not who has a big family, or at least a manageable-sized family, not who has a wonderful job or whose life has been spared of some of the struggles of those around them, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, happy, joyful is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Blessed is the one whose wrongs have been pardoned, whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin has been put away, put out of sight, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. Happy. Joyful is that one. I wonder, is that your experience? Do you know the joy, the happiness of the writer of this psalm for the forgiveness of sins? Do you share that joy with the psalmist? Well, for some of us, I suspect, we are all too aware of our guilt and sin. In fact, we're weighed down by the great burden of it and feel perhaps that there's no sense of forgiveness, no sense in which that has been dealt with. We're all too aware of our sin. For others here, perhaps we're entirely aware of some of our sin, 
and yet stubbornly refuse to turn back to God, stubbornly refuse to repent of it and ask for forgiveness. But I suspect for many, many here, we acknowledge that we're sinners forgiven by God through our faith in Christ. We know that. And yet we still have this sense in which we're pretty nice people. We do nice things. We make mistakes every now and then, sure, and God will forgive us. But by and large, we do a pretty good job living our lives. For many of us, I suspect we have a tendency to minimise our sin. We fail to fully appreciate our great and continual need for Christ's forgiveness. And so we don't experience the great joy of knowing sins forgiven because we minimise our sins and our need for forgiveness. The psalmist says, blessed, verse 2, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. He's not saying blessed is the one who never tells a lie. But blessed is the one who is open and frank with God about their sin, who confesses their sin, aware of their sin, brings it before God, seeking his forgiveness. The one in whose spirit is no deceit is the one who is completely honest before God in confessing their sins. Now, talk about confessing of sins and talk about guilt is uh, not popular dinner table conversation these days. It's not popular conversation on the bus on the way to work, is it? Around coffee. And in fact, it's not popular to be discussed anywhere, really. It doesn't feature in the uh, myriad of tips on how to be happy. Confessing sin, dealing with guilt. In fact, if you Google how to be really happy and look at WikiHow, it'll give you some hot tips. Um, along with, uh, you know, good diet and exercise, it actually discourages um, thinking about your sin and your guilt. It says, don't dwell on past failures, but live in the moment. In fact, it doesn't actually say this, but what it implies is make your life so busy that you're not distracted by worrying about feelings of guilt or past regrets. Some of the tips these sites, or even psychology sites, will, will give you about happiness involve learning to forgive yourself. Don't be harsh on yourself, you're only human. Well, let's look at how the psalmist uh, what his experience of acknowledging his sin before God is. Have a look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We know that feeling, right? Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, whether at the time as he was feeling the weight of God's hand, he saw it as that, whether at the time he was 
uh, consciously aware of this great sin, this great burden resting on him. It's not really clear, is it? Although he comes to recognise the need for his repentance and the forgiveness he receives through confessing his sins to God. But in, initially, he's, whether he's aware of the, the cause of it or not, he's deeply troubled by his silence. I kept silent. I pretended. I hid away my sin before God. We do that, don't we? Hide our sin, pretend it's not there. Wittingly or unwittingly, I think, we cover our sin all the time. We seek to hide it from others, certainly. We even try to hide it from God and perhaps from ourselves. But as we heard in the reading from 1 John chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive not others, certainly not God, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We, we all try to act like Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, they're given one clear command which they disobey and how do they respond? They know they've done the wrong thing. When they hear God coming, they hide. Adam and Eve hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing God. How did that work out for them? It's foolishness, isn't it? And yet we try to do it too. I think we even try to do it while we're in the process of sin. We know we're doing the wrong thing and we just say, hey God, just hold on a moment. Don't look at this. Don't look at this. I'll, I'll come back to you in a moment. Don't look at this, God, while I just linger on that TV show or that website, which is really not appropriate. Don't look at this, God, as I vent behind somebody's back. Don't look at this, God, as I accept my boss's praise for something that somebody else has done. As I stretch the truth for my own benefit. As I act on my greed and lack of generosity. Don't look at this, God, I'll be with you in a moment. Do we do that? Or is that just me? And I think unconsciously, or, or perhaps more accurately, subconsciously, we get sucked into the lives of the world around us that seek to minimise and dismiss sin and guilt. Guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a God-given emotion that God uses to bring us to him in repentance, trusting in his mercy. Guilt is an emotion that God can use to help us recognise our faults and ask for him to change and amend our lives. But guilt can be easily distorted and is distorted by the society in which we live. The society in which we live and breathe and uh, take our influences. We live in a society, don't we, where we're made to feel more guilty about our food choices than our moral choices. That second piece of chocolate cake. 
We live in a society where parents are made to feel more guilty about denying their children opportunities than about lying to them or losing our temper with them. We live in a society that distorts guilt and downplays sin. Sin is commonly downplayed, isn't it, as just a mistake. You know, all the celebrities, when they're caught out for something, oh, I made a great mistake. Or, I couldn't help it, it's a condition that I've got. Or, it's just human nature. We make lies of sin. We celebrate it as a guilty pleasure. There's something kind of exciting and risque about it. We live in a society where acting on every urge is just simply being true to yourself. And we live in a society where the gravity of sin, the seriousness of it, is distorted and out of whack. Where tabloids are more critical of a celebrity's fashion crimes than, for instance, their lack of faithfulness to their, uh, to their spouse. And we live in a society where what is dishonouring to God is often socially acceptable. And our friends will say, what are you worried about? What's the big deal? That's right, isn't it? And so we're influenced by this and we look at our own lives and we downplay sin. We distort our guilt. We minimise the consequences. Now, it's really important to say that when we come to faith in Christ when we first trust ourselves to him, when we first come before God in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ's righteousness, his perfect life rather than ours, that God forgives us once for all time for our past sins, our current sins and our future sins. We are forgiven. We've moved from the category of unrighteousness to righteousness, from death to life from being an enemy of God to a beloved child of God. That happened once. And we're forever in that new state. Yep, that's important to know. That as we become aware of our sin, God has already dealt with it in Christ. And yet, we're not yet perfected. God is still at work in us, bringing us time and time again to repentance and faith and growing us to be more and more like Christ. So he commands us that we should confess our sin to him. And when we don't, when we hide our sin, when we minimise our sin, when we ignore our sin, it's us we deceive. When we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And as we diminish the sin in our own lives, we diminish a whole lot of other things with it. We diminish our appreciation for our ongoing need for Christ, our trust in him. We diminish our growth in Christian life. We diminish our knowledge of God because we're separated from that understanding of his great love for us through knowing the forgiveness of that sin. How great it is. If we think our sin is a trifle, then we think what God has done for us in Christ is a trifle. 
When we diminish our sin, we diminish our humility before God and before others. And when we think our sin's not that bad, and we see our nice neighbours, our nice friends, our nice family, we think their sin's not that bad, and so we diminish our appreciation of their need to come to Christ for forgiveness. Perhaps the biggest danger for us as a church, St Stephen's here in this nice part of Willoughby, where we all live nice lives and do nice things for one another, the biggest risk for us is that we diminish our sin, we lose our love for Christ and our love for our neighbour. And as we see in this psalm, as we diminish our sin and we don't bring it before God in due repentance and faith, then we diminish the joy of knowing those sins forgiven. Blessed, joyful, happy is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered over. So it's important for us in our Christian life that we regularly confess our sins, that we confess our sins to God privately, but we also do it before one another so that we remind ourselves that none of us have outgrown the need for God's forgiveness in Christ. And so we do that most Sundays, don't we? We confess our sins together. What's equally important as we acknowledge our sin and our guilt and confess it to God is that we remind ourselves of God's promises to forgive us through Christ. To interrogate our sin, to be aware of that, and not aware, not reminded that God has dealt with that and taken her away through faith in Christ leaves us in a dark place, doesn't it? We need to be reminded of the forgiveness, the joy that comes with that so we can feel joyful so that we could write a psalm like this. Joyful am I that my sins are forgiven. The Apostle John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I write this, he says to you, so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. There is no sin in us so great that Christ's death is not sufficient to deal with it, to take it away, to cover it over, to forgive us and remove our guilt. Well, we can try to hide from God, but we only deceive ourselves. The other option is to hide in God. Hide from God or hide in God. Have a look at... Verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. What a great image. We can pretend our sin isn't there. We can hide it. We can minimise it. 
or we can hide in God, knowing his forgiveness and the confidence, you will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. We can hide from God or hide in God. It's a bit like, you all know this situation, right? Friends are coming over, you've had a busy week, the house isn't really as you'd like it. And so you quickly throw all those last things in the study and close the door and hope no one opens it. You know that, right? Or is this just me again? No, everyone does that, I'm sure of it. Uh, and so your friends come over, they admire your nice house, and the whole time you have that dread in the back of your mind. What if, they, what if they're looking for the toilet and they stumble into the study by mistake? The door is thrown wide open and I'll see what such a mess my house and my life is. And we can try to hide it. We can say it's not there, we can put on a good front. And it's a bit like that when we try to hide our sin from God. But it doesn't have to be like that. When God turns up at our house, we can say, God, I'm really sorry about this, I'm ashamed of this, but look at the state of my study. And he will say, I'll deal with it. You come back and it's spotless, everything in its place. CDs colour-coded and all. And we can keep hiding things, can't we? And we're missing out on the joy of having our life cleansed. Oh, while you're there, God, I'm really embarrassed by this too, but this cupboard here, it's got all the puzzles and all the pieces have fallen out and they're just shoved in there. Don't worry, I'll deal with it. The cupboard's sorted. And throughout our lives, God in his mercy, uh, it seems, doesn't show us all the messy rooms and all the messy cupboards in our life at once, right? He only shows us a few and deals with that. And then as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our Christian lives, he reveals more parts of our lives, puts his finger on them and says, hey, you need to deal with this. And we can hide it and say, no, it's all under control. We can be fearful of the consequences. When I was a staff cadet at Duntroom, we had regular weekly uh, room inspections. Your, your shirts all needed to be ironed, evenly spaced in the cupboard, colour-coded. Your rifle needed to be spotless. Uh, your socks needed to be folded in, inside themselves to make a nice little smiley face all lined up the right way. Uh, and during the inspection, you just I'd be praying, God, don't... The back of that drawer is a bit dodgy. Don't let him open that. I didn't get time to clean my rifle. Don't let him look at that. The soles of my mess boots are not sufficiently blackened. I got some extra drills for that. But we can be fearful of exposing these things and facing punishment. But that's not what God is like. We expose these things to him and say, Lord... This part of my life's a mess. I'm sorry. I repent of those sins. Please deal with them. And he'll take them away. And you come home to a cleaner and cleaner house. Your life. It can be hard to do, though, to pinpoint those areas of our lives that need attention, that need confession. How should we confess? Well, I think 
I think it's good to, to have a general confession. So the prayers we, we normally pray, the confessions, are of a general nature. We pray generally about the things we ought to have done and haven't done or the things we ought not to have done and have done. It's good to confess a general attitude of disobedience and rebellion against God. But it's also good to be specific, to identify particular areas we know that we need to confess and that God needs to deal with. And if you just spend a minute scratching the top of your head, you might come up with a few things, but it can be really helpful to to think systematically through different aspects of your life and identify areas that need confession. I came across the prayers of uh, one Christian man, which I found really helpful in shaping that kind of structure. Uh, He prays these prayers each night, pausing to think about each category as he thinks of it, and having given thanks to God for the day and for the people that God had uh, put him in touch with the, the day, he prays this. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess to you my sins of today of doing works of flesh rather than letting the fruit of the Spirit flourish in my life, of intolerance and impatience rather than forbearance, love and care, of envy and jealousy of others, competing with others or feeling superior to them rather than loving, serving and encouraging them. of pursuing happiness rather than holiness and being slow to accept rebukes, of looking for the approval of others rather than your approval, of lack of self-discipline in personal life and work rather than living for you and serving you in all things, 